I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Show me the magic Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies What a scene Of your Hollywood song Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast I'm Matt Looker I'm Ed Williamson We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans And each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles uh, this time that film was uh, Two of Us, a made-for-TV movie that was first broadcast on the VH1 channel on the 1st of February 2000. Should I try and summarise the movie? Tell me if I'm not pitching it right. So um, the film depicts a fictional encounter, albeit one that was based on real events, between Paul McCartney and John Lennon in New York on the on April the 24th, 1976. Yep. It is basically a lot of long conversations... And some scenes of them gallivanting. And, there, is, um, there is some gallivanting. There is right. a lot of gallivanting. Uh, and encounters and some more long conversations. Uh, ultimately, I think it's about two former best friends trying to reconnect, air grievances, um, clear the air after six years since the Beatles split up, whilst also trying to reconcile that with being two of the biggest names on the planet. So... I think I found this really difficult to to judge as a film because I think it relies very much heavily on uh, you knowing who Paul McCartney and John Lennon are to begin with. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't establish characters. No. It very much depicts two two people that you the audience is expected to know who they are and some of their history already. Yeah. Um, so Which... I think the first question is, for me, how well does it portray? Paul McCartney and John Lennon, or how accurately does it portray them? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's probably it is probably a pretty accurate portrayal of the way that everyone assumed their relationship was at the time, 
and not necessarily an accurate portrayal of the way their relationship actually was. Uh, the dynamic between them was probably uh, such that um, they they had some grievances, but I think by that point they they were more or less getting on pretty well. And actually, at, at the start of the film, when Paul turns up at John's apartment, I think he greets him by saying, "Turning up unannounced after all these years." So, mm-hmm. in in real life, this is the first of a few fact checks that I will do throughout this. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it, in real life, they had actually last seen each other over Christmas night in '75, so about right. four or five months previously, or something like that. So they were they were getting on all right. Uh, they weren't necessarily the best of friends because there were a lot of people who used to rock up at the Dakota through the 70s when John and Yoko were there. So people like Elton John uh, and sort of various other sort of rock uh, luminaries would show up. Uh, Sometimes John wanted to see him and sometimes he didn't. And I think by that stage, Paul was just sort of one of those people as opposed to... But it, it, it probably held... It's probably fair to say it held more significance for him when Paul turned up, yeah. Whether negatively or positively, history, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that is quite a significant fact check, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the, the entire concept of the film is that they haven't seen each other in six years, and right. what they would say to each other <laughs> yes. in order to reconcile. Yeah, the whole film's bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. So. Um, yeah, but, but also like that's that's quite common knowledge now, right? Because the film is based on, um, as far as I'm aware, it's based on something that John Lennon had said in the Playboy interview, I think, in 1980, the year he died, mm-hmm. about how McCartney had visited his apartment and they'd spent some time in his apartment and talked about what, where the film culminates in, which is that Saturday Night Live offer of yep. them reforming yep. live on air. But the what's even mentioned in that interview, I believe is that it was one of many times. Yes. So it's not, you know, immediately, like, the source that the film is based on, it feels a little bit flawed. Yes, but I think uh, one of the things about Beatle fandom in general is that uh, since it became, in sort of post-Rolling Stone interview, since sort of 1970 or whenever that was onwards, um, it sort of became a little bit overtaken by sort of uh, middle-aged men who are very keen on just getting facts right as opposed to sort of experiencing any joy <laughs> in the whole endeavour. Right. Uh, like, God forbid, you know. <laughs> and um, and so I do think that... It, so I'll, I'll spot the odd factual inaccuracy in the whole thing, mm. but it doesn't bother me. I think it's perfectly reasonable to do, as it introduces itself as such, introduces itself as... This is a largely fictionalised account yes. of uh, you know of what took place, and it's kind of based on uh, on real events. So in in real life, when they it, it was this date, I think April twenty fourth, when they saw the Lorne Michaels Saturday Night Live thing. Yes, it wasn't just the two of them; it was Yoko and Linda as well. So I I will fact check your fact check. Then. Wow. Okay. okay, I know we're going deep. <laughs> <laughs> I so recently. Paul McCartney was asked about this on the Anne Buxton podcast from 2020, I believe, mm-hmm. and he was asked about the film. He said in that moment that they never actually saw the Saturday Night Live episode at the time. Yep. He talks about that having been the week before, and John Lennon told him about it when he was visiting the following week. 
So he said last week. Right. So so that whole idea at the end of them um, actually watching it live and going down to Shio live, yeah. McCartney has said didn't happen. But I think there was this idea that a week later they, they could still do that a week later and go down to the studio and interrupt. Right, because... So there's was, an element of truth in it. But. Yeah, it's, uh, it was Saturday night again. Exactly, yeah. And, and live yes. again. Because so that's how time works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, that's an effective fun trip. Fine. I was going to ask you whether or not you thought that the portrayals of Lennon McCartney were fair... Because I think I, I I think that Lennon is very much portrayed as like the brash, relatively arrogant, mm-hmm. I might say, um, um, an and angsty role. Yeah. And McCartney is much more sort of the kind, wholesome family man role. And I think that the what the film does, which is I think actually very clever, is that by choosing this period of their lives and position them in this way they're presented as polar opposites in a way that I hadn't really thought about them as before mm. you know um, I think that I, 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 I you know see that you know obviously Lennon has like a, a, a more um, tragic upbringing and McCartney doesn't like he talks a lot about you know how his family life was very wholesome and um, yeah uh, and stuff but actually depicting them this way so that they're actually, it feels like they're trying to reconcile from two opposite ends of a spectrum, I think is actually a really clever thing that the film does. Yeah. I don't know if it's accurate though. I don't know if it's, if it's at this time, that's exactly how they would have been. Yeah. I mean, again, the sort of accuracy of whether or not that was how they would have interacted at that time, is sort of less important than what the film is trying to do, which is trying to, uh, do that sort of polar opposites thing. So I mean, like, bear in mind this. This came out in um, two thousand. So I mean, at, at that time, the sort of predominant narrative of the difference between them, which we kind of understand a bit better now, but maybe twenty two years ago we didn't. It was that whole thing of like Lennon was the tortured genius, and everything that he did was you know real and authentic, you know, and McCartney was the more sort of throwaway pop songsmith um, mm-hmm. and which, which by the way I think is it's very clever that uh, or rather it's it's um, happy happenstance that um, the song that they keep referring to to highlight this is Silly Love Songs which was yes. out at that time but that's a that's actually the perfect song to use mm. to emphasise Paul McCartney's sort of light, fluffy pop sensibilities yeah exactly yeah because Silly Love Songs is kind of used as a motif pretty much throughout the whole thing so but Paul hear, he doesn't hear the song I think but he hears it being discussed in the cab on the way over yes. <laughs> the cab on the way over yeah. which by the way <laughs> sorry to drop but um, my favourite thing about that cab ride is that they switch the radio on and the DJ says it's Beatles weekend <laughs> and then immediately says here's a song by Peter Frampton <laughs> because they clearly don't have the rights to the Beatles <laughs> yeah, <music."> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway yeah sorry so no, yeah no, they no, discuss no. that they discuss silly love songs didn't yeah they? And, it, it, and it's yeah it's thrown around as a motif uh, all the way through and because it, 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 it's almost as if um, that is a, a good way to illustrate the, the differences between them I mean McCartney wrote silly love songs as a defence of the idea of silly love songs partly because he'd been attacked in the music press partly because he felt he'd been attacked by John 
for yes. uh, writing. I think maybe Lennon he mentioned sort of nursery rhymes at some one point as well because you know he, uh, Wings had done Mary had a little lamb yes, a few years before and stuff like that. And so th- there is this idea, which I guess had persisted since songs like Obladio Bada and Maxwell Silverhammer, even that where sort of we're told that these songs that John absolutely hated. I'm not sure. I, believe that entirely he mm. seemed okay okay to go along with them in general but yeah i think i think there is this this idea of sort of pop froth from mccartney uh, from mccartney and uh, realism from john and that's what it's trying to do um, but it does exist at a time when the popular consensus was that's what the two of them were yeah yeah sure i feel i, I do feel like when mccartney asked lennon what he thinks of the song mm. and lennon says you think people would have had enough of silly love songs. Right. Yeah. That's supposed to be one of John's clever, witty deliveries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't help but watch that happen and be like, but that is literally what the song is trying to say. Mm. <laughs> like, right, like yeah. it's not it's not necessarily clever if the song is already a defence of that. Yes. And you're pointing out what it's already defending. You know? Yeah, yeah. And there is a bit, uh, There's uh, there are bits where the film kind of, it slightly tries to have its cake and eat it with that because actually uh, so Silly Love Songs was at number one at, right. in America at the time hmm. and so I suppose if you're scripting this you think well this is the date on which it happened I have to set it on this date and um, and then you look and see oh Silly Love Songs was at number one at this time brilliant this is absolute gold dust you know so I can weave this in and like to be fair like it, 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 all these little details do tend to be mostly factually accurate um, throughout the whole thing and so once the screenwriter has figured out uh, Silly Love Songs is like the number one song in America you, I can bring this in as a motif and keep on referring to it uh, which is fine but as you say the way that they do so or it kind of misunderstands the nature of the song in context it is obviously a defence of the whole thing and exactly. so like quoting it quoting it directly as an example of a silly love song as Lennon does yeah. in it, it doesn't really make it that undermines, I think, his position as as someone who's critical of of McCartney's work at that point, because it almost yeah. implies that he doesn't, well, he doesn't get that, which is obviously a really you know easy thing to to get that a song is trying to do. Yeah, yeah, um, but I, but I think that there are, I think, sort of further along in the film, you know, there is a sort of grudging admission that he. I think he says Band, Band on the Run was a really good album or something like yeah, that. It takes so, him, I mean, yeah, it takes the most of the film to say something yeah, nice, but yeah. Yeah, so he he, he does kind of admit, because uh, the interesting thing is, just, so I mean, Lennon always listened to, I mean, all, all the solo Beatles stuff, you know, he would always, I think he would claim to have like, uh, um, have no interest in pop music, certainly after 75, his sort of supposed recluse period until 1980 mm-hmm. he would sort of claim to have no interest in pop music and have no idea what was going on but he was listening to um, McCartney's records especially oh he, certainly he yeah. was definitely listening because he was always commenting on them right like he <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. was always he was always criticising them like publicly yeah 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 like, um, uh, for the most part as far as I understand um, by the way I, I have to just in, um, mention this now because uh, it's the perfect time to say so you mentioned the screenwriter and it, it would be remiss of me to not point out the screenwriter's career to date. So the guy who wrote this film is Mark Stanfield, mm-hmm. who all I could find out about him is that he is a long-time Beatles fan. Like, as in, I think every review that I've found about this film, and there aren't many actually, which, which mm-hmm. goes to show, I think, how far under the radar this film has, has um, flown. Um, but in every review, 
<laughs> I could find that everyone refers to the writer Mark Stanfield as long-time Beatles fan, which makes me... It gives me the impression that that's how he was positioned in the press release for the film, right? That's just... Right, right, right <laughs> Because yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah. else about this yeah. guy out there. But it's, um, it's worth pointing out that on IMDb, he has one other credit. So he wrote Two of Us in the year 2000. He was the screen, credited screenwriter of that movie. He has one other credit in 2014 so he waited 14 years to work in the industry again mm. and this credit is as driver within the transportation department yeah. of the film Robot Overlords right okay um, Robot Overlords is the one where it's just uh, George Harrison and Ringo Starr having a long conversation <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> uh, Earth has been conquered by robots from a distant galaxy yeah. survivors are confined to their houses and must wear electronic implants risking and it goes on and I won't click in to expand that summary because I think we did it um, but yeah interesting interesting career trajectory um, yeah uh, within the industry but, it's um, a, but, but also and I, and I, and I realise that sounds like a massive dig at him but um it's not meant to be because generally it's interesting that that was his career trajectory because actually I think the film's written really well. Yeah. Like I realise it comes from a Beatles fan Absolutely. and that yeah. is like, you know, essentially you're putting to, um, putting down on paper uh, lifelong research essentially. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, it's a really um, interesting and compelling um, depiction of friends who become estranged mm. and then and, and estranged over a particular, you know, they, they get to the Yoko argument um, yeah. quite soon in the film. Yeah. But estranged over, I think, um, something that is familiar or universal to a lot of people. And then, you know, everyone loses touch with like childhood friends and mm -hmm. stuff. And then this idea of what it might take for two estranged friends to reconcile, I think, is actually quite nicely realised in the film yeah I know I agree and actually because it gives it's his first and only writing credit isn't yeah. it so I mean it, it, it's actually really really accomplished um, considering that I think also particularly because uh, because the whole thing uh, because the, the, largely the entire thing is two people talking in a room a couple of different rooms um, there is a lot of back and forth in the dialogue where um they're sort of on good terms, and then there isn't necessarily a crossword, but then they they suddenly switch to being on bad terms, either because John's taken something badly that Paul said, which yeah. wasn't meant badly, or something like that. And so there is, uh, it, it, I guess, in terms of, rhythmically, in terms of writing something like that, where you don't have there aren't things the characters are doing. Um, you know, they're, they're not sort of uh, getting in a car chase or, or or anything like that. You know, that would um, naturally be like a good beat on which to switch the dialogue from "we're getting on" to "we're not getting on." Sure, you yeah. actually have to write it in such a way where you introduce these things in the dialogue so that um, the tide turns a bit, and that happens sort of three or four times throughout the whole thing. Yes, I agree, and it feels yeah, like you say, it feels natural that that happens. Mm. I will say that I think that the opposite is also true frequently throughout the movie. Right. Um, because uh, I think you're right. I think I think those those subtle tone changes work very effectively. Mm. I do think that the film um, delivers context through dialogue in a way that no two people have ever spoken to each other in real life. Like, there is... Do you know what I mean? Like, there yeah. are some bits that happen where, yeah. like, 
when they're in the um, cafe uh, towards the end of the film, the restaurant towards the end of the film, where um, Paul McCartney is telling Lennon, "Oh, um, my my Heather likes you. You know, you're a fan. It's just fan." Mm. And Lennon says, "Oh, you mean Linda's little girl?" And then McCartney out of nowhere is like, "Well, she's my girl too. I adopted her many years ago, or something." You know, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there were just like littered throughout the whole film. There are things that suddenly feel like they're very expositional. Yes. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be so. Like, and actually, and I was going to ask you about this because one of the ways this happens, and I feel like it's jarring when you watch it in the film, is the way Lennon very quickly talks about his childhood yeah. and the tragedies in his life. Yeah. So he very quickly suddenly says, you know, my, my dad walked out on me and um, my mum my gave me up she didn't you know, care enough and she, I had my aunt. And it feels like, at the time, it feels like it's important for us as an audience to know this because it's important to the story, but it doesn't come up naturally enough for it to be believable. Yeah. And yet I was thinking about this and by this point Lennon would have done his primal screen therapy and would actually I imagine have gone through quite a from what I I know he would have gone through quite a lot of periods in his life where he became very open and honest about his feelings and emotions so do you feel like that's something that he would have you know come out with quite openly at that that time or there's a bit of a mix isn't there with him in this film because it feels like on, on some hands he's very extremely guarded and then yeah. out of nowhere he'll suddenly reveal something on to, and mention something very extremely personal yeah well I suppose that goes back to the idea of how they were uh, one on one as people when mm. uh, when we weren't seeing them when there were no cameras around so yeah I suppose I suppose the primal scream therapy had been what four or five years before or something like that um, so I think think from that point on I think he was less guarded about himself in general I'm not sure that meant that he would just randomly start talking about his father mm. um, to anyone who'd listen but maybe he would with Paul I mean you know these yeah. guys were very close friends and they'd known each other since they were teenagers it would kind of make sense the thing about their fathers having died in very uh, close proximity to one another is true their fathers died in within about a month of each other or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Again, it's one of those things that as a screenwriter, when you're doing your research, you think, oh, right, that's gold, that's going Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that double pain. Oh, I definitely <laughs> have to highlight that in the film. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's also, like, it's one of those nice examples, it's not nice examples, it's about no. their father's dying, but, like, it's one of those examples of, uh, like, Paul talks a lot now about the fact that their mother's, died quite close together and how that kind of bonded them a bit um, which, it, which it would when you're teenagers and actually um, you know if you're you can imagine that as teenagers uh, because they weren't sort of lads and they weren't sort of into football and stuff and they were bonding over a creative pursuit like songwriting and music was the thing mm. that they met over and bonded over in, in, in the, the first instance and so you kind of imagine that they were probably a, a, a bit more emotionally open than most Liverpool teenagers yeah, in the yeah, late sure. 50s. Um, but there is, there is a, a story, I think, isn't there, about how um, they both got really drunk one night in a hotel room during the touring years of the Beatles and, yeah. and like openly like wept and in, in front of each other, That's right. literally bonding over their parents, their mother's death. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, because Paul has told that story. I think it was a hotel room in Florida and actually in... 
uh, what is the song he wrote um, here today when he says what, oh, about, yes. what about the time we cried yes. that's what he's talking yes, about apparently yeah. so yeah I think that that bond existed but no I mean it's, it, yeah I, the, the idea that sort of Lennon would just sort of come out with the stuff about his father maybe it's, it was perhaps slightly raw because his father had just died yeah, so maybe, maybe more but than it's, usual but, but it's also I think it's the, there's a there's a line he says before which uh, and maybe, maybe I'm not um, doing it justice because it's it feels particularly jarring to me in the movie, but he says something like, um, I don't even recognise myself anymore unless I'm aware of that bloody pain right. from when my father walked out on me or whatever. And it's more like yeah. he's very, you know, it's the kind of thing that you'd have in a first draft. Yes. Like, um, and as a writer, you'd be like, okay, well, I need to make that a little bit more like something that somebody would actually say in real life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then, I, but then he's such a John is such a character, and as someone who went through you know primary screen therapy and, and presumably other um, outlets for emotions, um, maybe maybe it's realistic. It's just a hard thing to sort of pin down. Yeah, maybe, and I, I think um, yeah, again, you know, the, the sort of hundred percent accuracy of the thing is not is not really the point of it. Um, I think in terms of how they related to one another I suppose as, as a writer and as a director you're trying to find the things like how these two characters relate to one, one another yeah. the stuff they have in common stuff that um, stuff that bonds them and the stuff that divides them and just sort of try, try to focus on that so I suppose that's all they do Here's a cool fact A crocodile can't stick out its tongue Another cool fact You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the nice things about the film, uh, I think, is that where the pair really come alive is when there is music involved. Mm. Um, like when I when I say come alive, I mean together, like as a as a pair. So and I think the, throughout the course of the film, they um, they interact differently, and there's tension, and there's you know there's warm feelings there, and there's a, there's a whole gamut of emotions that they run. Mm. But um, when they are just playing the piano. Um, and um, McCartney start playing like an old classic. They start singing together, mm. and they start messing around in Central Park. We've got the reggae band playing, sort of that. Yeah. Um, that feels like a nice, um, like bonding moment yes. for uh, at those times, and it feels like that's probably true from everything that McCartney says about how mm. for all the tensions when you get us in the in a room and you know just had, you know just playing music, then it was always just about the music. Yeah, it feels like that's like quite a nice way that they brought that out in the in the film. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, I think because there is a, uh, there are little uh, there are sort of little private jokes in it, 
Well, I think one of them refers to a, a, a fictional Beetle Harold at some point. Oh, right. And they're talking about, I don't know, it, it reminds me of, there's the, the John Lennon Imagine documentary where George Harrison's come around to play guitar on um, How Do You Sleep? And they're all in the kitchen, and he's and they're being filmed, and he's sort of asking him, like, "Have you seen? Have you seen any more of the Fab Four recently?" And and George says, "Yeah, I saw a Beetle Ed the other oh, week." Oh yes, you know, yes, And, and yeah. they're just making up random names for Beatles, and you get the impression, "Oh, this is a private joke that you guys have had for years." Yes, yeah. Where you yeah, just yeah, say, yeah. "Have you seen like you know Beetle Beetle Keith or whatever?" Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. And so, and and that comes up, and there's also, but the other thing that two of us does is that. I, I get the impression that, that there may have been bits where Aidan Quinn and Jared Harris were just sort of improvising a little bit because there are bits that seem to be private jokes that we have not been let in on. Right. So there's the bit where they go up in the lift onto the roof. Yeah. And they're and they're doing these little accents about you see the football. Yeah. How do Leeds get? How do Leeds United get on? And all this kind of stuff. And yeah. It's like and you've you've been given no explanation uh, for any of this. And it, it, if that was, I mean, I don't even know, but if, if that was a, a little private joke that real life John and Paul had, uh, then it's lovely that they're just sort of riffing well, on it a little bit. See, yeah. that's interesting because I read that as um, that comes just after their sort of joshing in the lift yeah. um, and Lennon jokingly um, tries to kiss him. Yeah. Right? yeah. And there's... And then there's a moment where McCartney says, you know, is my name Brian? Yeah, right. Yeah. right. And also, by the way, which I think is it's an, it's a, it's an interesting thing to include because obviously there's the, you know, long-standing rumour about Lennon and Epstein, which as far as I understand, there's no basis in or foundation in reality at all. Mm. Um, but um, it's an interesting thing that they included that in the movie. Yeah, I thought so too. Um but also <laughs> immediately likes Aidan Quinn's like um, ah I got you ah, I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I but then they switched to what you just said then and I took that to be like um, come on let's like be you know stereotypically straight heterosexual yeah, men now okay. like, let's talk about football it's like Man United Man United yeah, yeah top of the yeah, division yeah, you know yeah, yeah. and I thought that's what they were doing in that moment like them which feels more um, aligned to what I think of them as because like you mm. say they're probably more in touch with their emotions, as far as I'm aware, not as interested in sort of, you know, um, uh, laddish activities like football and stuff like that. So it's kind of mm. them deliberately playing up to that. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a really that good thing. point. Yeah. No, I, I hadn't thought about it in that context, but you're right. And, and talking of which, what do you actually think of the actors then um, playing McCartney and how well do you think they do that? It's always, it's always a bit... It's not a nice thing, I think, to talk about how well an actor has done an impression of someone famous because it <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be an impression, right? But at the same yeah. time, with something like this, it kind of has to be. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, there's there's a difference between impersonation and a performance, uh, yes. obviously. But, I mean, at the same time, with two such recognisable figures that you're playing, um, there is a bit of an onus on you to get the impersonation part of it right. But very, very broadly, they do. Uh, I think, uh, like the the accents are not a hundred percent. Aidan Quinn's McCartney is a bit more Irish than it is. I'm <laughs> so glad you said that because I read so many reviews where it, where there, everyone was talking about how spot on the accents yeah, were. Yeah, and I watched it and I was like, I swear, I feel like he slips into Irish a little bit yes. to the extent that I thought Aidan Quinn, maybe that's an Irish name. Yeah. So I looked him yeah. up. But he's no, he's probably he's American. 
yeah, which, yeah. which to some extent makes you think like that's even more impressive that he's <laughs> he's pulled off what is um, extremely great Scouse accent mm. um, that happens to occasionally slip into sort of other British regions. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I I assumed when I first watched it that he was Irish, yeah. um, and he it was just his natural accent coming through. Right, right, yeah. And it, and it's interesting with his accents because the um, there's a bit where he's playing the piano and he kind of impersonates a sort of. Uh, a sort of like New York barfly yes, character yeah, yeah. or a sort of uh, gumshoe detective character. Type thing, yeah. And actually the voice he's using there is more similar to his own voice. So when he's, when he's playing the police captain in elementary yes. years later, that is mainly his accent. Um, uh, Jared Harris, uh, his accent, it's really interesting when people play John Lennon because the, impersonate, the impersonation thing is... Um, very, very few people do a good, accurate John Lennon impersonation. Mm. It's very rare. Peter Serafinovitz is <laughs> pr- probably the only one that I've seen, like, not quite, but more or less nail down the accent. What most people do is they 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 really get they get like the acerbic way of the way he talks you know and they always go and they'll, and they'll talk in a very aggressive way right. Ian Hart does that a lot you know yes yeah and yeah. so like and Ian Hart is great the million times he's played John Lennon but um, <laughs> uh, but but that is the bit he does is like the acerbic way of the way he talks and yeah. actually there is uh, there's 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 so much more to like a, a John Lennon accent for a start but also the way he talks because he was sort of alternately hard and soft yeah um in character as well as in the way he spoke and people don't tend to get that what jared harris does is like a a generally good uh liverpool accent from that period and i think and yeah and and by the way i think that's as with Aidan Quinn, I think that's completely enough. Of course, yes, yeah, in terms yeah. of the way they, I, I don't think they need to get the accents completely bang on. No, yeah, sure. Uh, they, they both do a good job, and I think um, their performances in general, um, like I say, there's a lot of nice interplay between them. You get the impression that they are old friends. Yes, I think yeah. that's, I think that's very well done. I think the final scene is really, really nicely played. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. They they've agreed that they're going to go down and do the SNL thing. Yes. Paul's gone out to get his guitar. He comes back. He uh, he sees John on the phone. John is now kind of sitting cross-legged on the floor, talking very quietly to Yoko. And I suppose it plays into that idea that he's sort of in Yoko's thrall in some way, which I don't think is terribly positive, but it but it is what the film is doing. And Paul immediately just recognizes that everything they've just done over the last four hours or whatever it yeah. is. That's all gone now. A second, yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think yeah. that's, I think there's so much to unpack there because I think that um, you're right in that that suddenly shows a very vulnerable side to Lennon that mm. we don't see in the whole other rest of the film. Yeah. Like that, that I guess that the the vulnerable emotional side to Lennon um, that is reserved only for his relationship to Yoko, mm. and we don't see that in the rest of the film. But it plays off completely believably, believably, because mm. I think that I think that it kind of rings true of what we know with that with him uh, in real life. Yes, yeah. um, and I think that yeah, you're right in that um, the way that scene is played off, where McCartney realizes that uh, the moment's gone, like that's quite a that, that that has more of an emotional 
punch mm. then what is set up as the emotional climax of the film which is the rooftop chat mm. where McCartney talks to Lennon and tells him you know you're a beautiful man and you know this is how I see you kind of thing yes yeah. that's played as like the explicitly um the, the emotional climax of the film but actually it's, it, there's a much more um emotional gut punch I think when McCartney gets caught up in the moment as they've both been caught up in the moment and mm. they hit the, the hit you know hit reality again when <laughs> he comes back and says actually no things are, things are changed and you know yeah things are different because I think also that um the perhaps the way it's written or perhaps the way it's directed or perhaps just the way it's acted or a combination of the three uh, <laughs> that's that, how films work yeah yeah, yeah. films yeah, <laughs> right. um, the um, uh, I think there is a sense that the way it's set up is that McCartney has uh, the narrative is perhaps that McCartney has come round because he wants to reunite the Beatles and I think what Aidan Quinn does a really good job of is not overplaying that but mm. actually giving across the sense that he is a bit concerned about his old friend because his old friend is a bit of a shut-in mm. and he doesn't think he's doing that well and he wants to come over and check on him, which is a very McCartney thing, you know, that, that whole thing of him writing Hey Jude because he was driving yeah. out to see um, Cynthia and Julian because they were just getting divorced and stuff and that, like that. And that's you know? like a real... Um, that's a real theme in the whole film, isn't it? That him being this family man, him talking about, you know, his stable of... Um, kids that they talk about where he shows all his like uh, photo- wallet photos to right. Lennon um, but also when he starts connecting with Sean over the phone and right. Lennon yeah. visibly gets a bit jealous of that yeah. and tries to almost match it in a way that isn't yeah. particularly well um, doesn't particularly you know come across well for his character yeah yeah there's a few things throughout the film where I feel like you're very cleverly um, swerving making a statement um, about exactly how somebody felt about it including when they actually get to the bare bones of Yoko like at no point does does the film try to make out that McCartney McCartney doesn't like Yoko no what it does is uh, frame the argument as um I felt like I was losing my best friend. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is quite consistent um, with how you can almost, you know, in the Get Back documentary, you can you can see that that's kind of how Paul feels, that this is, you know, this mm. is the closest friendship he's had in his whole life and now it seems to be fading away. But he seems to be, well, for the cameras at least, he's, <laughs> he's, he's quite pragmatic about that. And yeah. he's saying that, you know, they're in love, who am I to... To block that, you know, and you know, and I'm sure there was that. There's a bit of animosity for a time. You can imagine it, you know. Your your best friend gets a girlfriend, and then you don't see him as much as you used to. It changes things, you know. That's uh, it, whether you're the most famous people in the world or not. You know, it's um, it's quite natural. So you mentioned it before about the Yoko moment at the end of the film. Mm. It's interesting you say that that shows Lennon being in her thrall. Mm. Um, uh, I guess I didn't think about it as as in that way, but I did think that what the film does is it feels like it's trying to mimic the career of the Beatles at that point, where you have a rooftop moment, <laughs> and then you have um, what is essentially um, Yoko only getting in the way of the Beatles being the Beatles, right? Um, and that's not 
deliberate. It's not depicted as being Yoko saying that she wouldn't approve and therefore she tells John not to do it or anything like that. You know, it's not it's not a negative depiction of Yoko Ono. But I do I do think that that moment by her being the one that prevents them doing something that they seem to be really into and and, and properly reconciling as best mates and, and getting back to what they were, mm. the fact that she becomes the barrier to that in the film, I feel like that plays into the negative perception of her being the instigator for the Beatles breaking up. Yeah, uh yeah, it definitely does that. I mean, I would go further than you. I think I think it is it, despite the fact she never appears on the screen, I think it is generally a negative depiction of Yoko Ono mm. in that um I think uh, John is presented as uh, a, a sort of pretty independent spirit in general other than the things that he does because of his relationship with Yoko. The macrobiotic diet. The macrobiotic yeah. diet, the numerology, which yes. he was very very into, you know, they they used to, you know, there were sort of business business dealings that they did and they wouldn't turn up. They were all, I think they were supposed to sign the contract to put the, an end to the Beatles and he was supposed to turn up and do it at Disneyland in Florida, but he didn't because the numbers... Oh, were, is that why? I remember that. Were yeah, wrong or something that. Like yeah. that. You know, there, there was a lot of that, you know, and... And listen, you know, it's not it, 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 it's not ridiculous to say that this guy had been influenced by his wife. Of course he had. But I think um, the only points in Two of Us where Lenin seems at all cowed or uncertain mm. uh, are, are those bits yeah. are wh- where he's basically saying, you know, it, it's like, you know, should we, should we go out for a walk? Oh, I don't know. I need to check. Yes, and, and Mercury um, in retrograde, and and, and and the bit at the end, which I think, as I say, is, I think is brilliantly played by both of them. But Jared Harris, his body language has changed so much when uh, when Paul comes back in and he's expecting to, you know, carry this thing on. They'll go and play guitars, and Jared Harris is just kind of sitting cross-legged on the floor, and he's he's almost kind of rocking quietly, yeah. and he and he's just sort of almost now sort of cocooned. Back in his Yoko bubble, and you, you get the what it is. I suppose trying to say is that he um, he doesn't really have a will of his own uh, yeah. when it comes to Yoko. You know, he's sort of and and I think th- this is the thing about it, it. It is fair to say it is not making this point explicitly. Uh, you know, of course it isn't. It, it is subtext, and it's quite it's quite clever subtext if that's the way. If that's the thing you're trying to portray, but I think there has for far too long, which I I think there's less of this thought now, but there was for far too long this idea of sort of Yoko Ono as this devil woman who just um, had an agenda to sort of get in and split up the Beatles. What she'd have to gain from splitting up the Beatles, I have no idea. I mean, if yeah. she you know if she wanted she wanted money, it would have uh, made a lot more sense for her to keep the Beatles together. Yeah, you know? right, yeah. um, but, um, you know, but we've been fed this narrative for a long time, and I, and I think, uh, particularly with sort of modern Beatles fandom, people don't really think that way so much. So it does... I, I, I think if I had watched two of us in 2000, mm. I wouldn't have noticed this at all. But in today's context, it's very, very noticeable. I think. And, it, and I feel like it's, it's really noticeable now... Because, as you mentioned, um, you can see that that's, the, the narrative changes thanks to um, Get Back, Peter Jackson's Get Back. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that there are, you know, watching the film generally now, um, 
the experience of watching this film changes because of what Get Back gives us in terms of an insight into how they interacted with each other mm. um, how they jam together as well like when they when they get on the piano um, and they do the whole film noir detective gum shooting um, uh, that does remind me straight away of, of watching gum uh, of watching gum, watching get back mm. and how they would literally just dick about on their instruments yeah. and just do stupid stuff and just have literally have fun with it and stuff like that yeah. and, I, and I think in the year 2000 that you know, watching that, I don't think I would have necessarily appreciated that that was an accurate enough um, representation of the kind of thing they would do. But now, knowing and watching Get Back, mm. it's like, yeah, that's that feels exactly like what would happen at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and also to the point where McCartney then starts playing an, an old tune they're familiar with. That feels totally in keeping with what we know of him because mm. of. Um, you know, get back and I guess other things as well. Like it feels like he's he's always sort of digging into the past or finding the musical common ground, um, which they can all sort of jump on and, and enjoy together. Yeah, yeah. And I think actually the thing we I don't think we've even touched on is the fact that uh, two of us is directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yes. Yes. Also di- this, yeah. Yeah. So who also directed the Let It Be sessions, which of course later became you know the, the Get Back document. Yes. Documentary. He directed Let It Be, and he's frequently seen in Get Back as the man trying to direct Let It Be. Yeah. 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 And trying to make them all go to Libya. Um, <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and actually because that lends it because I I mean I think I first saw. Uh, two of us sometime in the noughties I guess right. um, but um, I, it, this is the first time I've seen it with the context of realising that the guy who directed it was also a guy who spent lots and lots of time in a room with Lennon and McCartney yeah, yeah. hours and hours and hours over a month seeing them interact and actually you know, I wonder how much that informs two of us Completely, yeah. I mean, that, that that's really interesting. It's like, a what to what extent would he have had um, involvement in um, the, how the scenes played out based on his experience with them? And also, you know, it's interesting that the you know one of the last scenes in the film is them on a rooftop, and that is obviously what the scene that he directed, mm. uh, having captured that that you know on camera yeah. they even reference like um you know on behalf of the band uh, myself and the band you know that, that that's that's directly lifting a moment that is iconic for the band mm. that was down to him having capturing it in the first place yeah it feels like it's interesting that he whether it was written before he came on board as director or whether he had a plan it's interesting that he gets to retread that old ground yeah. in this film and, and i think it's in, uh, the yoko ono stuff is interesting as well in that, I mean, whether he wrote that stuff or had much of a creative hand in it, I mean, he's still the director, he still has kind of a mm. final say. And so, uh, you can, I mean, the, the way he saw Yoko Ono is presumably how the film ends up depicting her. Yes, uh, yeah, that's true. In yeah, that's interesting. And, th- and that's interesting in that, um, you never got much of a sense in the Get Back documentary that he was particularly anti-Yoko. And I mean, and by the way, it, 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 there is a good chance that the Get Back documentary cuts out a fair bit of stuff that yeah, might true. make us yeah, think of true. Yoko Ono negatively. Um, yeah. But, you know, fair enough, because that balance needed redressing. Um, mm. But yeah, it may, it may have been that having spent uh, like a month in her company... He was, he was not a huge fan of his, you know, yeah, yeah. and that he kind of thought, um, 
he kind of uh, went along with that idea of her being the one who split up the Beatles. And, and by the way, I mean, the Beatles themselves all um, had a negative view of those sessions. You know, you see yes. in the anthology, they're all talking about it negatively. And, you know, it may well be that thing where the, uh, like, human beings' memories often tend to extend only to the outcome of an event and not the, um, the, yeah. the uh, and not the, the, the process of the event itself and so it, it may be a thing but because their last experience of Let It Be was seeing the Let It Be film which is very very it, which is the, the a film of a band breaking up yeah and so you know that's kind of how they remember it so that may well be most likely is because he directed it um how Michael Lindsay Hogg thinks of those sessions yeah 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 exactly right yeah I think that's true I think it's um it's also worth pointing out that after Let It Be, he went on to direct some of the McCartney or Wings solo music videos as well. Right, okay. So I believe, in fact I'm sure, before Let It Be, he was the director of the um, uh, paperback writer and Rain music videos that yeah. they, they sent in to what, Top of the Pops or yeah, that's the right. music show yeah. at the time. Yeah. But he, after, after Let It Be as well, I, um, he went on to I think he directed Muller Kintyre which off the top of my head I can't remember what the music video is like but I imagine it's just a, a one a single shot of McCartney in a farm um, playing an acoustic guitar until a bagpipe troupe come in it's, it's, it's amazing that you can't remember it because that is literally exactly <laughs> what that video is it feels is. like um, I mean, it feels I mean that's just off the top yeah, of my head but I imagine that's what it would be yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure he did a couple of others as well but it's interesting that, he, that it passed the Beatles he clearly was able to maintain some kind of relationship with Paul McCartney, which again must have informed this film. Mm. Um, and I wonder if also that lends itself to sort of a natural bias that the film has about how McCartney is much more genial and uh, I, I guess you know accommodating as a as a person than the angsty, difficult um, Lennon. Yeah, because that may well have been his personal experience of them. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, certainly in the start of those sessions, Lennon was maybe not uh, turning up on time or, you know, yes. maybe not mega engaged and all that kind of stuff. There's a really interesting bit in that scene where they're talking to each other on the roof where I think it was a, Lennon quotes a poem and then says Walt Whitman. Yes. And, yes. Then, and then McCartney goes, Walt Whitman. Like, just does it in a <laughs> co Cockney yeah. accent. Yeah, yeah. And actually, in the Get Back documentary, he does that quite a lot. You can see that he's, he will sometimes just talk in a Cockney accent. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. For a laugh, yeah, right. But also, you get the impression he does it to sort of diffuse tension yeah. sometimes. You know, yeah, just yeah. if he's saying things that are actually quite serious, like, why have you not written any songs for, yes. for this when I've written like 10? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, yes, and, he, and they immediately like dissolve into this sort of like banter. For the, yeah, for the yeah, mind. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so I thought that was really interesting because that that was probably a habit of Paul's that Michael Lindsay, Lindsay Hogg had observed. Yes. There's no reason for that line to exist in the script at well, all. So, and I did read somewhere, and this is really um, mad of me not to, not to answer a quote where I read this, but I did read somewhere that there was a Beatles historian that compiled lots of um, audio and footage of um, of the Beatles to help Aidan Quinn and Joan Harris in their portrayals. Oh, right. But importantly, it wasn't 
footage of the Beatles it was footage of them specifically when they were just by themselves mm, so it was it was to try to help inform like how they would be with each other mm. so that might also play into it a, a bit I guess as well I did think one of the things I was going to mention as well that I do think that um, there were some flashes of um, mannerisms that Aidan Quinn pulls off that I'm like yeah that's totally McCartney mm. like he he, he he brings out the thumb quite a lot yeah. and there's like a palm up as well where it's like you know, like there's just the <laughs> yes. sort of general mannerism of, of uh, like right at the start where he gets interviewed by someone, um, and he's you know it's almost like we're stanking them, and he's like, I don't know, there, there's just something that he does where it's like, yeah, that is exactly that that feels very very familiar uh, to me of what I've seen of, of McCartney, and I also think when they start singing the uh, the tumbleweed song around the uh, around the piano, there was one bit towards the end where he throws in which I can only assume is an ad lib um, between like the refrain and the chorus mm. he says something like keep on tumbling or something he sings that in a high pitched voice yeah, it's like, like a little... that's exactly how McCartney would sing that yes his little falsetto it's like an yes. octave up from yeah yeah, 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 yeah and yeah, it's yeah. so good yes. um, and then he even ends that song with like a ooh like <laughs> it's I, and I think that's just I, I can totally imagine that's exactly how McCartney would, would play that song mm. and that is all down to studying him and mm. how he would have done that so yeah. I, on the whole I think his his portrayal of of McCartney um, without having much to work from I feel like I feel like Lennon's a bit more of a caricature yeah um, in real life and McCartney is probably a little bit harder to nail but I think Aidan Quinn actually gets a lot of rights about him his portrayal of him yeah yeah I think so I think we um, are done, aren't we? I think this is this is this is enough chat on two of us. Have <laughs> um, we covered everything? Have we got anything else to add about the film? Uh, no, it was a good film. It was a good and film. I, yeah, I, I, I was. I, I will say it was. It surprised me. I think that for a film that was that came out in the year two thousand, looks like it came out in nineteen ninety. Like it's twenty two years old. It's it looks thirty two years old. Especially the opening credits of like Yes, the opening so credits, like, exactly. It's like, like looks like a rom com of like It does, like, it's like Caroline in the City. Like it's, like, it's, <laughs> it's like, a really like, random pool of like a, a sitcom. <laughs> um but, yeah. but it's like guys, like the year before this came out, the Matrix was out. Like right, you could right, have right. the game a little bit. <laughs> um but yeah, it, it feels it seems a lot more dated than it is, and considering how um little known I think the film is I really just assumed before watching it that it was going to be made for TV trash I thought it was going to be one of those terrible um, made for TV biopics that get shown on like um, TMZ or whatever the American channel is but was really pleasantly surprised by by what a sort of decent character study it was yeah me um, too because I I I think I've seen it probably three times right. and every and the gap between each time has always been long enough that I've kind of forgotten enough about it and I'm always pleasantly surprised by yeah, how yeah. much better it is than I expect it to be you know? yeah yeah agreed good um, okay well let's wrap it up there uh, if you're listening you can reach us on all the usual social media channels uh, at Beatles Films Pod um, and we will see you next time thanks for listening bye bye
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.